Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The almost 250-year history of American democracy is not clean nor uncomplicated. So many were excluded in formal and informal ways from participating in political life, a fact reflected in everything from the structure of suburban housing to the way we elect presidents. Now, legally, the electorate has never been more inclusive, the tent never bigger, and not unrelatedly, the structures and foundations of democracy are troubled by resurgent polarization on the one hand and deep apathy on the other. We launch a new series today on what has to be done, big and small. It's called Doing Democracy. We kick it off after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. America. Today, we begin a new monthly series called Doing Democracy. We're all facing a daunting election season again somehow, and we know that the next year is going to be filled with horse race coverage. And yes, elections have consequences, and we need to know what's happening there. But here on Forum, we also want to do something a little different. We're going to focus on the bigger questions and the infrastructure of democracy. How do our institutions match up with our values here in the Bay Area? We'll examine experiments in democracy that have worked, that have failed, and that have yet to be tried. We'll look at the innards of providing government services with Jennifer Palka. We'll talk about radical ways of doing democracy that don't even involve elections. We'll talk civil disobedience and rewriting constitutions and tiny acts of democratic caretaking. And of course, we're going to do this all together, both here on the air and in a new dedicated part of our digital community. You can go to kqed.org slash forum to figure out how to get in there if you haven't yet. We start off today with a broad sweep. Our guest, Ted Johnson, is a contributing columnist with The Washington Post and a former commander in the U.S. Navy. He spent time at the Brennan Center, now is posted up at the New America Foundation, working on a project to look back on the first 250 years of this country and then moving forward ask, what do we actually need for this fractious, beautiful, diverse place to hold together over the next 250 years. The Us at 250 project will be working to help this country get closer to fulfilling its aspirations, and they've got a few ideas about what might be necessary. Welcome to the show, Ted. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So 
First off, in you know, 1976, there was a bicentennial, and you know, we could right. call that thing a bicentennial. Uh, 250 years. I, I'm not even going to attempt what we call semi-quincentennial, something like that. That's exactly right. <laughs> Language arts teachers around the country are very happy with the word semi-quincentennial. The centennial is the hundred. Quinn is the five. Okay, five hundred. Semi is half, so semi half of quincentennial five hundred gets us uh, two fifty. Quarter milli would have sounded way cooler. Much better. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, do these kinds of anniversaries mean anything? Like, what do they allow us to do as a country? Yeah, so they're actually very important, perhaps even more important to the nation state itself than it is to the people. So it's anniversaries are ways, they're the ways that countries tell the world who they are and sort of solidify for themselves what the national identity is. So it's a sort of reification or a crystallization of what it means to be in this country, what the the story of this country is and sort of what the future could look like. So it gives, it, you know, ideally in a civic sense, it would give Americans in this uh, instance, more opportunities to come together across difference, you know, urban rural divides, religious divides, racial divides, class divides, and celebrate the one identity that we all share which is uh, being a resident here in the United States. Mm -hmm. But but um, that that's, uh, you know, usually it means more to the state than it does to the people. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting. Like if you go back and you look at, you know, primary documents from around the bicentennial, you realize like people did reference it a lot, right? During that time period. Right. I mean, do you think that that brought any kind of like reckoning or new, you know, look back historically, given that it was kind of the mid 70s, very different time? Yeah, so I think the biggest things, one, Watergate had just happened. Uh, we had a president in 1976 who nobody voted for to be president, Gerald Ford, after um, President Nixon and Vice President Spiro Agnew both uh, left office. So it was this really interesting moment for the country and almost a question of whether or not our democracy would make it past 200. Mm. We made it to 200. Would we make it any further? So it was a moment to sort of reassure the world and ourselves that the country is on good footing. We're on solid stance in our democracy, our constitution held up. Um, I think some of the civic things, you know, I heard fire hydrants were painted. I was only one years old at the time, so I don't remember um, yeah. the, the bicentennial. But um, I, I do think the commemorations that were happening around the country were really, really important. Um, but we're also sending a signal uh, to, the, to the country about the strength of our institutions and to the world about the health of the United States and our democracy. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of debate in, in recent years about how we should approach this history of the country. And, you know, a couple years ago, Mike Pompeo's former secretary of state, he tweeted something that appeals really deeply to some set of Americans, I think, and that kind of neatly sums up one position about how we should think about American political history. He said, if we quote, if we teach that the founding of the United States of America was somehow flawed, it was corrupt, it was racist, that's really dangerous. It strikes at the very foundations of our country. I'm going to guess that maybe you disagree uh, with yes. that statement, but what do you what do you replace it with? Yeah, I actually think recognizing the progress this nation has made over the course of its nearly 250 year history is a point of pride. It actually makes you prouder to be American, to recognize that we got things wrong and we fixed it. 
rather than try to get people to be proud about of something that was perfect at its inception. And, and if we can just appreciate how beautiful and perfect it was, then we could all come together and get over our divisions. But remember, the three-fifths compromise was baked into the Constitution. It was written into the Constitution. And it wasn't until the 1860s that it was taken out. So for nearly 100 years, we had written into the Constitution that Native Americans could not be citizens and that enslaved people could only be counted as three-fifths of the total popu population when it came to um, uh, determining census numbers for representation in Congress. That we should not be proud of that, but we should be proud that we, we uh, got ourselves out of that uh, insisting that we live up to our principles. How do we square that sort of reckoning with the fact that our institutions, the political ones that we're dealing with, that we need to pass laws through that have, uh, you know, tremendous effects on, you know, the lives of, of all of us, that they were birthed, you know, back in this in this early time when these flaws were present. Like, how, how do you ap approach that? Yeah. And so I see as, you know, I think of America as the idea and you, then the United States as the kind of nation state that embodies this a nation trying to live up to these ideals. So it is possible to say we believe in equality, we believe in liberty and justice and democracy, and also fail to live up to those ideals. And so the 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 question is whether we will be a nation that is in constant pursuit of becoming a little bit more perfect or whether we will say we are a nation that is already perfect, so the status quo is satisfactory and either get with the program or go somewhere else. Um, you know, look, when we talk honestly about our nation's history, lots of white immigrants, lots of enslaved uh, black folks, lots of Native Americans, immigrants from all over the world have come here and been discriminated against. Women only got the right to vote just 100 years ago. And yet all of those groups have people who love this country so much that they were willing to die, sacrifice, bleed, sweat in order to make the country live up to its ideals. So the ideals can still hold a ton of power even when our actions fall short because the ideals propel those among us who believe in them to force, to compel the rest of the nation to uh, to do a better job of, of realizing them. Yeah. We're talking with Ted Johnson. He leads New America's Us at 250 initiative which is using the approach of the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence to reflect on our history, reimagine our future. Also retired U.S. Navy commander and author of the book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. I want to put this question to you. I mean, what are the fundamentals of our democratic system that you think still serve us best? And what's a remnant? of our system that is outdated, ready for change. And give us a call. Again, this is also the first of a new monthly series we're doing called Doing Democracy. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, threads, KQED Forum. Of course, we're going to be having more and more of this discussion also on uh, our Discord, our digital community. Um, Ted, your project has a kind of three-pronged mission statement. I thought maybe we could work through a little bit there, and you've, you've kind of hit mm -hmm. on a couple of them. Pride in the nation's progress, reckoning with historical and contemporary wrongs, and aspiration for a better future. I want right. to um, first talk about pride in the nation's progress. I think one of the feelings that I've heard most often on this show and, and with people that I know is the idea that, like, maybe we're not making progress. That maybe we have made progress, but that things don't are not going in that direction as we speak. 
Yeah, I, I think that is too narrow a view of our history. Over the last 30 years, it may not look like we've made much progress on questions of justice or equality, that sort of things. Uh, but if, look, I'm a Black man in America in 2023. It is, I would much prefer being a Black man in this year than in 1923 or, God forbid, 1823. So if, uh, if that is the case, and I assure you that it is, that speaks to the nation's progress. 200 years ago, I would have been born into slavery. A hundred years ago, I'd have been more likely, I would not have been able to vote, and I probably would have been at risk of being lynched if I uh, got out of place um, by not stepping off the sidewalk or being, you know, misinterpreted somehow. So to be able to say that we are using, you know, all the tools at our disposal to protect democracy, to fight voter suppression, to in increase voter participation, if that's the struggle, uh, to reduce mass incarceration, I would much rather be fighting this struggle than uh, being enslaved on a plantation somewhere fighting for the very basics of, of human dignity. That is a story of progress. It was not inevitable. It was not easy. It came because lots of people gave their lives for it, but it arrived because of that sacrifice. And I don't short count that. I don't discount that at all um, uh, uh, by saying that we've not really made progress. Those folks who gave their lives, um, they would uh, laugh us out of their, their era uh, to, to say such a thing. We have absolutely uh, become a better nation, though far from where we need to be. Yeah. We're talking with Ted Johnson. He leads New America's Us at 250 Initiative, launching our new Doing Democracy series here on Forum, which is going to be a monthly look both at the infrastructure of democracy as well as the values that inform it. You know, one listener writes in to say, I propose a change in semantics. Rather than putting American at the end of hyphenated identities, you know, like, say, Mexican-American, I suggest putting it at the beginning thus changing it from a noun, an object, to an adjective, a qualifier or quality. To be American, then, is an idea or set of values rather than being a thing. Instead of being an Asian-American, one would be American-Asian, a person whose heritage may be Asian, but who adheres to the values of being American. We may not be able to change heritage, but we can share ideals, which is the ostensible basis for the American experiment. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. 
I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is the first in a new monthly series called Doing Democracy. Up first, we're talking with Ted Johnson. He leads New America's Us at 250 initiative, which is using the approach of the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence to reflect on our history as a nation, reimagine our, our future. You know, you mentioned you'd much rather be a black man in America 2023 than in these previous times in history. One thing I wanted to ask about, though, is since the 1970s, we've seen very little economic progress on closing the various racial and ethnic wealth gaps, as well as many others that exist in this country, but specifically the wealth gaps, like the economics of this country uh, have led to greater and greater um, inequality, and that has been racially structured in a, in a way that's actually made things as bad or worse for uh, many people of color as, you know, in, you know, 50 years ago. Um, how do we look at the economics and the politics of this country and how they have worked together to create those outcomes? Yeah, I mean, look, last month was the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. And it wasn't just the March on Washington with the I Have a Dream speech. They were there for a purpose around jobs and economic security and around housing. And if you look at the data from the 1960s to today, school segregation is just as at the same levels, levels as it was or more. Um, the unemployment rate disparities, you know, black folks are usually twice the, the unemployment rate of whatever the national averages or, or certainly of the of white Americans. That's still the case. And so when we think about progress generally, there's absolutely no question the floor has been raised. But when we think about progress relatively, then it tells us that there's a reckoning that still needs to happen, that our nation is uh, built on a set of structures and, and policies and norms and orientations such that some people, based on their skin color, their gender, or their zip code, have a more difficult time trying to make it in America than other people. Mm -hmm. The American dream is more difficult for them to achieve than other people. That is what reckoning is about. It is closing those, uh, fixing those problems in our structures and systems such that people are not penalized because of their race, gender, or zip code, and that they get to reap the rewards of their hard work just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. But to do that, you have to accept that the structures have some bias in them, even if it's not maliciously put there, not because of a hateful person or something, um, and then commit yourself to do something about it, not to help one set of people do better, but to help the nation live up to its promises for all people and fixing the problems where they exist. And that unfortunately tends to fall on uh, lots of marginalized group by, groups by, by race and ethnicity. So I'm going to go to the phones in, in just a second. But first, I want to ask you about, you know, trying to do a project like this that is aspirational, that does want to look forward at a time, you know, presidents being indicted for the fourth time, poll numbers showing that in California, Trump's approval rating has moved up among Republicans in the states, up over 55 percent now. And many other Americans view our government with, you know, contempt or, or apathy. I mean, how in this climate do you look to sort of change the way that people are seeing our our history and our and our present? Yeah. And so this is one of those issues where there is no structural fix to this problem. Um, these folks that are, are ascending to power that have high approval ratings, they get that because people give that to them. It's not because an institution fixed it for them. So we have a, not only are our democratic institutions fraying, but our culture of democracy is also fraying. Mm. And I attach that um, to the fact that we just don't know each other. 
uh, most of the people in our families and our social circles and our closer sort of circles of trust, they're the same race as we are. They're usually in the same class, economic class as we are, same education level. And we self-segregate into these bubbles where we feel comfortable with people who are like us. And very few of our friends or our close ones are people who are different races or religions or, or ethnicities. And so the best way out of the, this problem we've worked ourselves into where we put forward people who may not have democracy or the nation's uh, best interests at heart, um, we uh, we need to go meet other people who are not like us. This is why national service programs, the military, for example, are uh, often put on a pedestal because those are one of the remaining few places where mm. people can be put into, uh, uh, you know, work together with others who are different from them and, and learn how to be Americans together. Hmm. Do you think the military works to do that? As someone who, uh, you know, made it all the way up to commander of the Navy? Yeah. I do. I think the military, it's not perfect. It's, it's far from perfect, but it is one of the best, if not the best in institution that puts Americans of difference together and then gives them uh, structure, principled leadership, and a, an overarching mission that uh, facilitates that kind of connection. The, the, the caution, though, is once people separate from the military, the benefits gained there have a radius and a half-life which means they don't last you forever and extend it to everyone you meet from that point forward. If you don't continue to nurture your ability to talk and make friendships with people across difference, you lose it, the skill. It's not like a bike. You, you forget how to ride it. And you can adopt some of the um, less tolerant attitudes of the communities that you choose to be a part of after military service is over. So it's not a silver bullet, um, but it is one of the best examples we have on how it can be done. How about your military colleagues who ended up you know, becoming like rabid pro-Trump supporters. Let's assume some of those some of those folks yeah. exist, or, or or who really supported um, the denial of uh, you know Joe Biden's election uh, in twenty twenty. Yeah, and I have many of those friends. Uh, again, after twenty one years in the military, you meet folks of all sorts, and I will say, even as I watched their progression from you know compassionate conservative of the George Bush era all the way to now Trumpism. Um, something, the one thing that didn't change was um, the way they treated me. And so they would say things about the president. They would say things about Black Lives Matter, for example. And I completely disagree. And some of it was even disgusting to me. But when my mother passed away a couple of years ago, those guys were, you know, sending me notes and, and texts and calls and stuff to, to express their condolences. When, uh, I, I, when Colin Powell passed away, I did a, a funeral um, sort of event for him or, or a media thing for him. And uh, one of my friends from the military said, look, I don't watch that station anymore because they're fake news. But if I knew that you were going to be on there, I would have tuned in. And so there's a way that they're able to maintain a personal individual respect and uh, which, which is disassociated from their, their public policy views that may run 180 against where I stand. So being able to separate policy from personal is important as long as the policies they espouse don't want me to die, you know, like yeah. armed violent. But you know, that's the thing though, right? That right. That is the thing that comes up. I mean, it, it, it comes up a lot in, you know, social media type discussions, but I think it comes up in, in, in real life too, that people feel like there are certain policies that move outside the boundaries of what they can tolerate in a friend. So how, so if someone is doing that, how are you supposed to sort of stay in proximity to them? How are you supposed to include them in your circle of care if you feel like they're not doing that for you? Yeah, no, you, you just can't, you can't. You know, if, if, if one of my military buddies 
suddenly decided to go armed to a state capitol to kidnap and assassinate the governor, uh, it doesn't matter if they bring cookies over. As was planned in Michigan, right? Yeah, (laughs) like a real thing you're using for those who don't remember. Yeah, right, exactly. But but in my view, what they are doing is actually against the Constitution. And me and that person both swore our oaths to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And if you are trying to overthrow the government of the United States, if you are trying to assassinate political figures in the United States, you are not a friend of the Constitution. You are actually a, an enemy, uh, just happened to be a domestic one. So I no longer feel any allegiance to protect their 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 view when when they're trying to uh, you know when when yeah. genocide or or some other mass sort of killing is is on the uh, or political violence is on their on the radar. It's there is a limit to these things. But the, the last little bit here is I just think the number of people who fit into that category are so, so, so very small. And based on how um, the, the their sensational acts and how the news is reported, we think they're a bigger part of the, co- the population than they mm-hmm. actually are. Your average MAGA person is not going to storm the comp- the, the, uh, the capital and, um, you know, maybe worth engaging in a, in a different setting. Yeah. We're talking with Ted Johnson. He leads New America's Us at 250 Initiatives using the upcoming 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence to kind of reflect on the nation's history and reimagine the future. He's kicking off our new series, which is called Doing Democracy. We're going to be doing it every month uh, until uh, the election next year. Really help us get a sense of, you know, what what do we need to remake uh, about the political institutions and culture of this country? Um, I think we're going to zoom back out with this uh, first caller here. Um, Ariane in San Francisco, welcome. Thank you so much for this incredible subject, which we need to to discuss and think together, because we really need to turn the mirror towards ourselves and soul search. Um, I'm just wondering what kind of country has as their major job program the military or has as their major industry the armament sector? And I, I really want to, as much as I respect your guest, and I do so deeply, I wonder why and how the American people can still continue to conflate capitalism and democracy. Mm. These two things, we go around the world purporting democracy, and yet these wars seem to be um, propping up our lifestyle um, in America, where we become like a gated community Mm -hmm. where class is caste. And I I just Mm. am very, very concerned where our country is going. I think we're all implicated in this karmically, personally. Um, I've been an activist for 20 years. Even in San Francisco, it's hard to get the Board of Supervisors to move in a direction Mm. to protect our environment. And I consider these endless wars as a distraction from the major issue of our time, which is the climate emergency. That's so interesting. Ariane, um, thank you so much for that. I mean, I think um, I, I really appreciate your tying together, you know, the economic system that we have here in the U.S., the political system that has uh, that, that supports it, as well as, you know, something we used to say. Uh, I mean, that was that was said in political discourse um, in the 2000s a lot, which was kind of about, you know, did we turn into an empire? You know, we have these mm-hmm. all these the military around the world. I understand, you know, it's part of your your service to go to these places. How do you try to think about that? You know, the, the U.S. economic system, its military power and our political institutions like do those things need 
to fundamentally change in relationship to each other? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I, I love the, the caller's point about how we seem to conflate capitalism and democracy. Look, the reason we spend almost a trillion dollars on, on the military, something like 800 billion, is because we, we believe that the best way to ensure the American way of life is protected is to basically ensure no one else can influence the American way of life. And that often means like going off in, on these ventures uh, for either for national security or for soft power kind of influence things. Um, the one thing I want to say is, look, we often think about America as the place where you can achieve the American dream as the pinnacle of what a society should do. But the American dream is an economic dream. It's about the, you know, the, the, the two and a half kids and the two-car garage and the white picket fence. The, democracy is something different. The, the, the ideals the nation was founded on, something different. It's not capitalism. Capitalism is dog-eat-dog, free-market stuff. America is also about shared prosperity. And that is what we've lost sight of. Democracy is not capitalism. Uh, the promise of America is not the American dream, but it's that we're all created equal. It's that we have unalienable rights among these life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And that's government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed. It's the second paragraph of the declaration. Money is not in that. And if you think the pursuit of happiness is all about economics, then um, your, your a view of America is too capitalistic. America is bigger than our system or, or our economy if we truly believe in the in the ideals the nation says it was founded on. So um, I, it's it's a hard mess to untangle uh, because we we believe our greatness is tied to our prosperity, but our greatness is beyond our pr prosperity if we configure it in the right way, if we think about it together in the right way. That's really interesting. I want to um, get at one of the other big issues here and I'm going to I'm going to come to a comment from one of our listeners Scott in just a second but it's it's that you know the US unlike many other um democracies has many contains many types of of people who've come in many different generations and with many different ethnic uh and racial backgrounds both um you know voluntary immigrants uh refugees uh, enslaved people and uh and it's an interesting question of how we find common ground. And so this is, I think, where Scott's comment is kind of coming from. Here we go. Scott, as a self-professed liberal, I admit that at times it's difficult to stand next to the flag. But I know that it represents more than what it currently feels like, which is heavy-handed right-wing ideology. I do hang our flag on appropriate holidays and wondering about an idea of everyone hanging flags, but with a more multicultural bent. An American flag could hang out front and center at 45 degrees and on its side, the countries that the immigrants represent. So for our house, it would be an American flag front and center and on the sides, Mexican and Japanese flags. Yes, we are Americans, but we celebrate our heritage. We don't leave our heritage and the history of our families just because we become red, white and blue Americans. And this, it really goes to this question of, you know, there used to be the metaphor of the melting pot, you know, and then people tried to come up with other ways that we were supposed to kind of come together as a people. Do you have a way of thinking about that or or thinking about, you know, the flag in this way? Yeah, it, it's a hard question. Um, you know, on the flag, it, you know, I'm, I'm still a military guy kind of at heart. And so I love the idea of having you know, an American flag, and then maybe the flags of the ethnicities from which you originate alongside it. And of course, you know, flag coach stuff says the American flag has to be just a little bit higher. But look, I can't there. I have no other flag. As a black American, what flag in Africa am I going to? I don't know. You know, there's, you know, these DNA tests that will tell me I'm 20 percent this and 17 percent that. So even that kind of approach 
there will be some people that will only be able to have the American flag. And maybe what they'll do instead is hang a political kind of flag around um, LGBTQ rights support or around Black Lives Matter. And then now it gets politicized and we're sort of back to where we started about whether, you know, what flag should keep company with ours. Look, the only thing that unites all of us, the only thing from, you know, the, the furthest western point of, of Alaska to the furthest eastern point of, I don't know if it's Maine or, or, or Florida, but, um, you know, the only thing that connects us is our belief in, in, uh, in the American ideals and in, in, in our, our created equality and our unalienable rights and, and, and the government that works for us. And if that doesn't unite us, nothing else kind of does, you know. And look, the last thing I'll say on this is when I traveled overseas, I've been to 30 different countries while in the military. I lived overseas for a little while. And if anyone who has ever left the United States, when you land back in the United States after a trip overseas, you just know you're home. And to me, <laughs> that feeling, that's something that makes us American. It's hard to describe. I don't know how you cultivate it, but as much as you may critique who you share the country with or or don't like what the country has become and want to, to reform it, when you get back home, you know it. And, and I think that's what we're fighting for, that shared sense of belonging, that shared sense of home that we experience differently. But in some instances, we all get that sort of same impulse. You know, it's funny. I, I, I do think... Oftentimes, particularly living here in the Bay Area, you can think like, well, I don't really live in the United States. I live, you know, in <laughs> Oakland. I live in the Bay Area. Um, but if you leave and then you come that's back, right. you're, that's exactly right when you're when you're out. But, what, you know, it's funny. You said it's hard to define. How do you get at that? How how do you start to define like, you know, like I, I was reading um, a, a newsletter by a, a writer who has you know lives outside the United States and came back and was like, Americans are just so nice. <laughs> like, like she, she was like, I think we underestimate that niceness, like that, you know, your old colleagues, even if they were, you know, hardcore, mm -hmm. you know, Trumpists would send notes about your mom like that. There is a there are these values that are there, maybe. What right. do you think? Yes, that's absolutely true. And uh, there are a few organizations out there that have tested concepts and terms to see what are the ones that break through across partisan differences, across the ideological spectrum? The two that almost always come to the top are family and community. Mm -hmm. And so at heart, Americans are a local people. I think it was Aristotle or Plato, one of those older guys said something like, the, the, the right size for any society is the city because the city state is the largest, that, the largest community that is still human sized that is still enough for people to have some sense of individualism and anonymity but also be able to connect with enough people to feel like they belong to something but not be so big that it's too hard to connect to this bigger idea mm. or so big that you get lost in the mix mm. so i think that's what makes americans you know um part of what makes us special we are very invested in our families and communities and can be generous about how far those circles are expand when we've got the right leadership and the, the right mindset we're talking with ted johnson he leads new america's us at 250 initiative this is the first in a new monthly series doing democracy here on forum stay tuned we'll be back with more police be tripping off yeah this is america guns in my area Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence. 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Ted Johnson. He leads New America's Us at 250 Initiative, which is using the approach of the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence to reflect on the country's history, reimagine our future. He's also a retired U.S. Navy commander and the author of When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. This is the first show in our Doing Democracy series, so every month running up to the election, We'll be stepping out of kind of horse race coverage to consider what democracy is, ways we can practice it, that kind of infrastructure. Um, In this segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about political institutions uh, of the country. And so we'd love to hear from you. What are the kind of fundamentals of our democratic system you think are still working and which are sort of outdated, ready for change? And, you know, whether that change is possible or not, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-733. 6786, that's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads, now Discord, we're KQED Forum. Um, Let's bring in uh, Alejandro in San Leandro. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me online. Um, Commander Johnson, thanks for being of service. Um, I am maybe a bit myself. And this is a really interesting conversation we're having. You know, um, someone talked about um, elections has consequences and talked about immigrants. My two comments are, um, you know, it seems like electric colleges is no longer a valid thing to, you know, vote for a national election. You know, with all this uh, geographic gerrymandering, with the Alabama being the news, you know, defying the U.S. Supreme Court about redistricting and stuff. And it's just a crazy thing. And the other thing, too, is, you know, this country is was founded by immigrants and escaping the um, the I guess the the religious pre- persecution in Europe and here we are you know uh, kind of mingling state and church mm-hmm. and, and you know there should be something like really like a red line separating church and state you know in the constitution and and, and, and in the state so I mean how would how are we going to address those things yeah Hey Alejandro, uh, thank you. Let's um, let's take first the electoral college piece. I mean, I think when we talk about infrastructure of democracy, um, particularly people who uh, vote dem- <laughs> as Democrats, um, <laughs> the first thing you hear from people: electoral college. You know, Joe Biden won by seven million votes, and and yet things can be tight. You know, Hillary Clinton. I mean, this is a, now um, a, re- a recurring feature of our democracy structures that. Generally speaking, Democrats are going to win the popular vote no matter what. And we have this Electoral College, which changes the you know, statistical probability of, of, of <laughs> right. them actually winning uh, the election of the country, according to these current set of rules. So how, how are you thinking about this at uh, the Us at 250 project? Yeah. So, look, when the founders created the country, they did not most of them did not want direct democracy. They did not want the people voting directly for the president because they they frankly didn't think the people were smart enough to make the right choices. So the Electoral College 
um, was a way to prevent direct democracy. And, and you know, some would say the large states from, from doing whatever they wanted to over the will of the smaller states. But look, the Electoral College doesn't empower the small states as much as, as much as it empowers political elites to do, uh, you know, to sort of make these deals sometimes that uh, go against the will of the American people based on direct democracy. Here's the reform that I think should happen. I think this, the Electoral College should be the, instead of a winner-take-all system by state, if you win by one vote in the state of California, you get all of California's Electoral College votes. I think it should be proportional. So if you win 60% of the vote, you get 60% of the Electoral College uh, votes that state has rounded up to the nearest whole number. And that way that incentivizes the party that's not going to win the state to at least lose it by less. So it matters if you lose 55-45 instead of 60-40 or 70-30. Everyone has to now campaign everywhere to close these gaps, which makes the process more de democratic, more deliberative, and more aligned to the will of the people as they express in the ballot box, but not so much so that it's a direct democracy. It still uses the Electoral College um, as, as the Constitution requires. So I think that's a reform that allows us to get some rid of some of the worst parts of the electoral college without uh and, and still make progress towards uh you know strengthening our democracy and making it more competitive and inclusive more on the institutions um also note california republicans might not mind that particular reform um <laughs> <I bet. laughs> uh, another alan writes in to say we should look at how our system is broken in fundamental ways the house has been gerrymandered by partisans seeking to survive the senate gives representation as much as seven times greater per person in some states compared to others because of the two senators per state compromise over 100 years old the Electoral College has allowed people who lost the popular vote to become president twice in recent memory. Supreme Court is so far out of sync with the public that confidence in it is at a historic low because of its small size and random process for determining which president nominates how many justices. Demagogues can sway nearly half the country with repeated lies. Alan, clearly not feeling optimistic about this country. I wanted to pull out, you know, one one piece of this, which is the, the structure of our legislative bodies right now. Mm. It's not just this sort of as we have... Uh, grown the urban areas of particular states. Their representation uh, has actually come down, um, as as Alan was indicating. But also, we haven't let the House grow at all either, right? So now every right. uh, congressional representative is representing way more people than they were, <laughs> you know, in decades past, and in a way that actually seems out of touch with what the you know the founders of the country and the framers of our our, our uh, political institutions would have wanted. So. Um, talk to me about that legislative reform. Are there things that, that we could ever even imagine um, getting passed through our current Congress that would reform its actual operation? Mm. So I was about to say yes, 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 until you said get passed through the current Congress. And I think the answer is no, no, no. But there are some big ideas out there that hold a lot of promise for getting rid of gerrymandering and for making uh, Congress more representative. You know, it used to be where each member in the House of Representative, Representatives represented like 30,000 people. And now the number is up to almost 750,000 people, people per House representative. The House hasn't grown in decades. And so folks like Danielle Allen at Harvard, who's also a board member at New America, um, folks like Lee Drutman at New America, they're reimagining how big Congress should be and then how representation, some districts, or one of the ideas that Lee Drutman talks a lot about is multi-member districts, where you don't just have a winner-take-all uh, congressional election, and then that person goes off and to Congress, but you have uh, a way for even the losers 
in a given district to have some representation, uh, which will require growing the house, you know, reducing the size of, uh, of their districts, multi-member districts, those two things together uh, means we'll probably have to build a new capital. But we can do that if our democracy is going to be more efficient as a result. But there's a resistance to it because these kinds of reforms change changes the balance of power and changes the journey to get power, the rules to obtain power. And uh, those who hold it are really less likely to support changes to the game when they've learned how to master it. So reforms are out there, even things like the efficiency gap, which tells you how broken a gerrymandered district is, how unfair it is. We have mathematical formulas that can help us balance it. We've just got to be courageous enough to take these steps to, to uh, make a more inclusive and participatory democracy. Yeah. We're talking with Ted Johnson. He leads New America's Us at 250 Initiative. This is the kickoff in our Doing Democracy series every month running up to the election. We're going to be talking about uh, the the other levels of democracy that aren't just, you know, pure electoral politics, the infrastructure and the innards of government service. We're taking your calls and comments on sort of what uh, the fundamentals of our democratic system that are still working and the remnants that are not the number is 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on all the various social things as well. Let's go to uh, Leah in Sunnyvale. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I'm, I noticed that um, the oft-quoted we the people now includes corporations. And in my mind, corporations are not people. Um, corporations' goals are to maximize profits, um, to pay their shareholders and whatnot, and that is not – they are not people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they should have no rights in terms of government, and because now we have this thing where um, corporations are considered people, you know, they have the money to, to overrepresent them actual people there are. So I think that needs to be redefined. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is I think we should have ranked choice voting nationally mm-hmm. for everything. Yeah. Leah, thank mm-hmm. you so much. Um, you know, why don't we, uh, you want to take those in reverse order? You want to talk first about ranked choice voting and just kind of other ways that voting itself could be reformed that might alleviate some of these problems of kind of the ossified power structures we've been talking about. Yeah, so ranked choice voting is is one of those ways that allows people more choice and um, sort of undermines the winner take all system. Where you know, so in ranked choice, you basically instead of voting for one person, you vote for like your top three or, or, or some configuration of that. And so when the your first vote, if that person doesn't look like they're going to win, then it your vote is automatically cast for the person second on your list. And so this way, you get to vote for multiple people. You give uh, third parties a chance to compete, especially at the local level. And so it just gives more voice to the people. Again, if the declaration says that the government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed. If you can find really efficient ways for the governed to give their consent, that makes for a better democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and ranked choice voting is one of those uh, one of those ways of doing so. You know, on the corporations piece, there is there's like a personhood piece to the corporations. You know, a corporation should have First Amendment protections. We think a corporation, as long as they're not lying about their prices or trying to defraud defraud people, which is not protected by the First Amendment, they should be able to say what they want to say. And so the only way that right extends to corporations is if we see them as people, because the Constitution is an agreement between citizens, people and the state. 
But when it comes to the money piece, now we're getting to another part of the political problem. If money is speech, then people with more money get to have more speech, which makes speech kind of unequal, especially when it comes to elections and politics. Is that good for democracy, for the richest people to have the most voice? Um, a lot of people would say no. And I think if you look in the Federalist Papers, for example, even the founders recognized that class economic inequality was the biggest threat to this large democratic republic that we've created. So I, I while I understand and, and believe it should be the case that corporations have some kind of, of personhood protections legally, I do not think that more money in our political systems leads to better outcomes, which means uh, you know, corporations in that sense, there, there needs to be some regulation there to ensure the voice of the people that have to live up under these policies are, are protected. Well, and you know, I think uh, out there in the listening audience, you can just, just hear people just shouting, Citizens United! You know, this exactly. court That's case right. from 2010, right. which made this, uh, <laughs> which in increased uh, the ability of a lot of corporations and, and donors to uh, to contribute to our political process. Um, right. We have uh, a comment from uh, Mike that is more on the kind of solution side here. Does your guest imagine it's possible to pass a law requiring 12 to 18 months of civil or military service? If so, how would we go about it? What would it look like? This is a dream I believe would benefit our country, promoting unity and cohesion. As a high school student in the late 80s, I presented it as a bill at a youth in government uh, conference. Uh, it didn't pass. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think it's a great idea. Unfortunately, I just think it's very unlikely uh, to compel service. You know, the only time we do that really in the United States is when you get summoned for jury duty or during the draft when you get summoned to, to go fight a war. And, you know, we don't really use the draft and we don't use the draft anymore at all for, for wars. Uh, but we still require boys to, to, to sign up for selective service. So there is a mechanism to compel people to do something that they don't want to do. Now, giving up a year, two years of their life to do national service probably would require, definitely would require legislation and probably would require a Supreme Court finding or ruling in order to just to, to validate the fact that uh, such compelled service doesn't violate people's constitutional rights, which is to say, it's very unlikely that it's gonna happen um, that route anytime soon. The other route then of course is incentivize people to do national service, maybe give them money off for school, or job, you know, job uh, guaranteed job after service or something like that. The problem with that kind of approach is people who don't need financial incentives won't be compelled to serve. They'll spend that time doing what they want to do. So then it becomes a kind of working class mm -hmm. or um, indigent uh, policy solution instead of bringing people across class differences together. So one way I, I think I don't know how to deploy this, but when there's a stigma attached to not doing something and people feel fear a social penalty for not participating, they're more likely to do so. So if you are, if you, for example, were uh, drafted, for example, in World War II, and you decided to leave to Canada, your family that stayed behind probably was looked at differently by the neighbors. There's probably a stigma like you didn't put in on this. Your kids would rather run away than serve. And we had victory gardens. We had like lots of people, you know, going in and, and serving to avoid the stigma of not serving. And I think there's something there that you can't be a free rider in America, you know, like this stuff costs everyone something, not financial, not just financially, but also of our time, resources and talents. And so if you, if you don't want to commit your time and talents to the future of the country, then, um, you know, maybe maybe we should think about what opportunities are available to you. But that's very sticky because and I'll say this and then I'll stop that gets weaponized. 
grandfather clauses, uh, poll taxes, literacy tests mm. are ways that people weaponize something that was ostensibly good, like the expansion of democracy, in order to shape participation in a thing to be a political or social advantage for one group over the other. So even with things like social stigmas and shame and social capital, it can get weaponized if we're not careful. It's a very sticky question, but I do believe more service by more people is a good thing for the country writ large. Thank you so much. Uh, Ted Johnson, if people want to follow us at 250, right, this project that you're working on, it's us at 250.org, right? Uh, that, that is an affiliate site. That's right. Or you can go to newamerica.org and us at 250 is one of the programs there. And you can find out all about what we're doing, the events we're holding, the fellowships that we um, award every year for local citizens doing remarkable things in their communities to bring Americans together. Um, and then we're also doing events across the country. In fact, I'm going to hold a comedy show of military <laughs> veterans next week in D.C. at the D.C. Improv um, talking about their service and the semi-quincentennial. Okay. And we hope to take these kinds of comedy shows, art exhibits, uh, piano recitals, these sorts of things across the country over the next three years. All right. The quarter milli coming up. All right. Thank you so much, Ted <laughs> Johnson, for, for joining us. Um, as you. we uh, come to the end of the show here, we also want to note that, of course, you know, we're not solving American democracy live on the air, though we've done our best. But we're opening up a new space within our forum digital community right about now to continue these conversations. And we'll use it ahead of our future shows to gather feedback and bring new topics to the fore. If this is something you really care about, our democracy, go to kqed.org forum. We've got some instructions there on how to get in and how to do it all. I also just want to note we use this community platform. It's called Discord, but I promise, don't let the name discourage you. That's just the name of the app. It's a very warm and inclusive community that our forum community manager, uh, Francesca Fenzi, has built. We don't always agree there, but we do make sure it's a good space for discussion. So, you know, kqed.org uh, slash forum. Also want to say the 9 o'clock hour of forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Juan, Juan Carlos Lara, and Dan Zoll. Our interns are Jericho Reininger and Amiko Oda. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Judy Campbell is our lead producer. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Special thank you also to Holly Kernan, who suggested that we do a special series. Doing Democracy on the Infrastructure of How This Country's Political Structures Work. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, 
the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.